Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of How I Crushed It, the podcast that shines a light on talent within the community. I'm your host, Tunde, and this week we welcome to the show the lip doctor himself, Dr. Tejuan Esho. Dr. Esho is an award-winning UK cosmetic doctor who has created multiple businesses, including several Esho clinics. Aside from his clinics and businesses, he is or has been the resident doctor on Body Fixers, the show on Channel 4. He's been the resident doctor on BBC Morning Live. And he's also appeared on This Morning with Phil and Holly. He has become an industry expert in anti-wrinkle injections, derma fillers, and advanced skin treatments. And he's said to have worked on over 100,000 lips, hence the nickname, The Lip Doctor. So here is my conversation with Dr. Escher. Okay, Dr. Esho, thank you so much for being on the show today. I know you're an extremely busy guy, so even to get you, you know, half an hour, hour, whatever it is, it's uh, it's a really great pleasure. So how, how, how are you and how's your day been so far? I'm good, man. It's mad now. Like, I'm trying to juggle business and being a dad. That is the biggest challenge, you know. I've got two kids now. Makes me think crazy. Like I sit there still looking at them, thinking I made these small people. How did we do this? Um, but yeah, it's just that juggle of life, really. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I, I, in fact, I can't imagine. I can't <laughs> imagine. But we're, we're, we'll certainly we'll certainly dig into that in a in a few in a few moments. Um, the the format of the show is that we kind of we document people's lives from from the be- very beginning right to current day. And I know with you. Life started for you in in Tottenham, and I'm I'm yeah. fairly sort of familiar with the area because I I grew up in Hackney, and um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, were, there were a couple of buses that went from Hackney down right down to Tottenham. Like, um, is it one one four nine bus? One four nine, yeah, yes, one four nine. Top of the bus at the back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, how, how was growing up in Edmonton? Because that's where you grew up, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, started off life like primary school in Tottenham. I was in like Wellborn Primary School, and then we moved to Edmonton. I think when I was about eight or nine, and I think it was because I was getting in trouble. To be honest, um, you know probably you living in Hackney, you know, there's a lot of people doing not a lot of good stuff around in these areas, unfortunately. And when you're a kid and you're bored, you're doing stuff and messing around with them. And that's how it kind of started off for me. My parents were just concerned I was getting in the wrong circles. So we moved to Edmonton, even though it's not as great, you know, it was better than how Tottenham was back then. And at the time, um, my teachers, again, were a bit like, maybe this is a tr- troubling kid, you know, he's always getting in trouble. And there was one teacher, Miss Eitel, and she actually kind of sat me down, sat my parents down, said, I think your son's very gifted, but he just needs to be, you know, stimulated. He's bored. So she goes, I got a proposition. I think I want to move him a year forward and give him after school work from the year forward. My parents went away with it and I just absorbed everything like a sponge. It was just like a, it was just like almost shock charging me and I always I'm so so grateful to that I've tried to search for that lady um because she probably changed my path which is probably similar for many people that grow in those inner city schools where unfortunately the numbers compared to the number of teachers they are they can get lost in the system I was very lucky this one woman looked at me and said no there's something more about this kid and gave some more dedicated time 
So what, what do you think it was in particular that she saw that kind of, um, she, you know, she put, took you on to one side and gave you that extra work? Was it, was it the creative side or was it like maths or? I think so. I yeah. always had an answer. That's what she would always say. <laughs> I always had an answer. Like, and even if it wasn't the right one, it was like, yeah, you saying that convincingly, it could be. Um, so like, I think that was straight away. And I think I always, I had a, such a good memory then as well. And which turned out I had a photographic memory. I still got bits of it. Um, but you know, she would just see how, when I was given the answer, it wasn't just my own answer. It was like word for word from the text of the book. So I think she picked up on those bits that people hadn't and been like, yeah, I think let me try this. And yeah, it worked. Oh, that's, that's, that's amazing. I mean, I, I don't know if you know, obviously, you know, Ian Wright and yeah. uh, there's this clip online of him meet, meeting his teacher. teacher. I mean, it's about 10 10, 15 years ago now, but I mean... And I want to do the same. Honestly, I have, if she's listening to Miss Eitel, you know, I want to find you. I've been trying to find you. I've been putting resources into finding because I've got a lot to thank her for, like so much to thank her for. Yeah, Yeah. that is, that's great. And I know your parents as well as mine are from Nigeria. Yeah, yeah. Do do you know when they they came to this country? Yeah, um, so they came in their 20s. Um, which must have been like in, you know, the sixties, early sixties, um, at the time. And, you know, they had me um, as their first child. And, you know, at the time when they came across my mom, my dad was an accountant in Nigeria. My mom um, was a teacher. When they came across, as you know, probably their qualifications weren't worth anything, even though they were highly skilled. So they had to work in a tiling factory to get money to get by. You know, we took, we were in council housing, so we took handouts from the church, everything else in Tottenham. And, you know, what happened was my mom sacrificed her career for them to fund all the money to get my dad to redo his accountancy exams in the UK. So he became an accountant in the UK while my mom then didn't go back to teaching, but started to work for the civil service. And then from then I noticed that, you know, we weren't rich in any way, shape or form, but we were better than what we were before because obviously my dad had then become an accountant and we had more opportunities. But I think because of that anyway, and being Nigerian as a fact, as you know, there was no kind of room for error. You know, I liked to draw and sketch as a kid and I thought that's what I wanted to do growing up. My dad was like, hell no. Like mm-hmm. you either be a doctor, dentist, accountant, a lawyer or an engineer. Yeah. And that was it. You know, there was no, there was no bending and I tried to rebel against it, but there was no rebelling, you know? And, and in the end I picked medicine because my dad had kind of focused that one most on me. And you know what? That's crazy about that. I think we look sometimes at parents and kids and we go, you know, just do what your kid wants and everything. But sometimes your parents know you better than you do at that age. And I really believe they knew me better than I knew myself and they could see something in that way. And particularly after Miss I would move me forward and then we, you know, I was getting the grades. I think my dad just wanted me to push me to be the best of what I could be and how he could see that. And I think in the end, especially, I mean, now kind of took my elements of the artistry that I wanted and the medicine that he wanted. And we kind of both got what we wanted at the end of the day. It's so interesting though, isn't it? That that story of, you know, Nigerian parents saying, you know, you must do one of the four or five professions. Ooh. It's so such a common theme and I've heard it time and time again. I guess it was just a completely different mentality back then. I think so, but I think it's a protective one, right? Mm. Because they know first off, my dad always said this, how hard it is to be black in the UK, particularly yeah. at that time as well. And 
also to get the opportunity to come from Nigeria to the UK in the first place, they were like, look, you know, you've got cousins back home that don't get this opportunity for this education. So in a way, traditionally, they saw these roles as success, but then also I think stability, you know, not just success, but stability. In a sense, if you look at all of those careers, those are jobs that in this common time now are stable, that people will still need you in those particular professions. And they think, being a black person, coming across, being an immigrant, aiming for one of those professions and getting there gives stability, not just success. Yeah. So in a way, it's, it's actually very strategic, wasn't it? Yeah, you know? completely so, completely so. So was it a happy childhood? I mean, you know, in terms of where, where did you guys hang out back then in, in Edmonton? So Edmonton, you probably know because you're hacking anyway. So there was Eros. Do you remember that club? Well, I'm older than you, man. How old are you? I'm in my 40s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Listen, you might know, you might know. Okay. Oh, so in so, Wood Green. Is that Wood yeah, Green? Yeah, so oh, like yeah. The, yeah. The sports bar. I actually worked in Wood Green part-time job in okay. Sega Park um, there as well. And yeah, that's why I would hang around. Um, Edmonton Green, um, Hollywood Bowl, all of those places uh, yeah. really. Um, yeah. And But to be fair, I didn't really get much time for hanging around because my dad was a taskmaster. You know, he... He didn't want me about hanging on the street. I was in reading books, you know. He was he was always <laughs> making sure that was the case, you know. Even yeah. exactly time my PlayStation disappeared, you know. <laughs> you know, there was there was yeah, it was serious. Like there was no B's weren't allowed, you know. Yeah. A's were what was expected, so there was no celebration, and B was a punishment. You know, that's how the level it was in there. Yeah, I read that. I read that somewhere that um, there was no room for failure. There was, well, no. yeah. Is that something that has carried on with you today? Do you think, or you know what it did? Yeah. I think it taught me to drive myself. Right. So I think some kids are born driven. Some kids aren't. I wasn't born driven, but I developed a drive after how my dad treated us. You see what I mean? So it became self-instilled. So by the time he was doing that through the period to, you know, uh, 16, 17, I was already in that kind of mode of, okay, it's top grade or nothing, you know, and that was, he could have, he could have not been there and that would have been my attitude by then. Um, so that's definitely what he did developing us. And, you know, you know, people say sometimes, oh, that might be a lot of pressure and stress. But I tell you, we did do it. Kept me out of trouble in the areas that we were. There's a lot of my friends that ended up, you know, messing around in jail or even died. You know, um, we saw a lot of bad things growing up. So, you know, for my parents in that time to keep me out of trouble, keep me on A track grades, and get me into medical school, you know, it's a feat that as a parent now I just hope I can, you know, replicate really. And if you go back, at what age do you think that you had the inkling to go down the the medicine route so yeah it wasn't for me being the inkling it was my dad so um, um you know when we came to work experience i wanted to do graphic design and and then go and work at this company my dad was like no i'm gonna get you this work experience in which is in hospital and that was the end of the story really right. but then when i saw the guy i can't remember his name there was a surgeon who was falling around the, um, the ward the respect i saw him have I remember that still on me today. I thought, my God, like everybody's running after this guy. Everybody's respecting this guy. You know, actually, I want that for me, you know, and I thought, okay, I don't really understand this, but you know what? I like biology. I'm very good at it. I'm good at my, with my hands. I don't know where this is going to go. And my dad's not really letting up on this. So, you know, let's go for it. Um, but very quickly when I was in there, 
you know, it was weird for me. I remember going and <laughs> I tell this story, like um, everybody was like, their parents were hugging and crying. And my dad was shaking my hand like I was off, like in a military, like in a <laughs> I remember my mom saying, hug him. And he said, no, 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 we don't hug. He has a job to do, you know? <laughs> and, wow. and, you know, that was it. But um, everybody was from generation of doctors, you know, or families or things like that. I, you know, I felt a bit displaced. And also I, I was the only black face until about an hour in and I saw another black guy that was so friends. Oh, um, today, shout out to oh. Like we just literally looked at each other and I knew we were thinking the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. We just wandered to each other and we were like, yo, we're in this together. And I remember us walking down the corridor and we made a luck joke to ourselves because we would see in the photos only one black face in each year graduated. So I'm like, man, it's me or you, you know? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> and we were both like, no, 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 we ain't got options now because he's Nigerian too. Like now we both will get through. Um, and yeah, we stay friends since then. So yeah, that was at, that was at Leicester University, wasn't it? Was so, Leicester, yeah, yeah, was that, yeah. Was that your number one choice? or what, what? It was actually. Because yeah. You know why? Because um, at the time, so... If you applied then to London, you didn't get first choice accommodation. You had to basically stay at home. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And obviously being in the Nigerian house, I love my parents to death, but I was like, if I'm going uni, I am not staying at home. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I know how strict it's been now for this time, but I'm going away. And Leicester was back then like top three, you know, they discovered DNA um, fingerprinting. Um, so it was one for me that like I applied for and I went right based on that. It was a way, I didn't know the city, but I knew I thought, right, I'll get a bit of independence. And yeah, you know, it was a great time. Um, I made some great friends um, in there that I still speak to today. Um, but yeah, I learned a lot um, by being there, um, you know, being an adult for the first time, really. And again, I read somewhere that um, because of your kind of outgoing personality they had you down as somebody that was maybe earmarked for to become a surgeon is is, is that right yeah i think you know what like you probably know this like in med school like it's a bit like scrubs right you get these typecasts of what role you're in and i think because i was pretty confident maybe cocky at times good with my hands like they were like surgeon you know and i think people got kind of old gp old pediatrician you know people kind of got put in that way and I think when I was on my surgical rotations that's when I naturally was at my best and it did then become me it made sense after that and I think yeah but I was always still interested in medicine that was the other bit so it was a bit of a weird one in the sense that I didn't kind of go about my surgical rotations just like with the typical surgeon mentality that okay here's the wound treat that and then everything else fall apart I was always kind of going the medicine route and also looking about what comorbidities and everything as well so yeah it did have that kind of unique property to it but yeah it kind of was yeah this guy is going to be a surgeon and then again in terms of you kind of not pivoting well maybe yeah pivoting I guess that's the right word into starting to think about cosmetic surgery I mean how did how did that happen yeah, so I was on my um, surgical rotation. So obviously after your SHO, you, you pick your SCs and mine was to go to plastics. So I did that from, you know, SD1, SD2 to SD3. And at that stage, it was the time where really you're kind of going, right, if I'm staying here, I'm doing my fellowship and going forward. And I was already shadowing my boss in his um, private clinics doing non-surgical treatments. So I'd just been exposed to those for the first time. And I was like, 
this is pretty cool. And I started getting really busy in those clinics. I'm more busy than actually he was. And you might not admit that. Um, but like, I remember then in theater in the NHS time, turning to him and saying, look, you know, I really like doing these non-surgicals with the lasers, everything. I really like being in there. You know, is, you know, would you do this as a career on its own? And I remember him stopping and saying to me, you know, look, the things have changed, you know, before that was an add-on, you know, you know, most consultants will have that as a clinic just as I have, but now, you know, people make careers of that alone. And I was like, yeah, but I've invested so much to go this way in plastics and do this, you know, what would you think? And he was like, well, if it doesn't work out, you can always come back. It was that simple. It was that statement that made me go, wow, actually, he's right. You know, I think sometimes, particularly for med students, particularly for us, we think, okay, we commit ourselves on this pathway. We have to just see that one through. And actually, you know, you are a trained doctor. You know, you can go back. You can rewind. You can take two steps back and go forward. You can, you know, it's your life. It's a small part in the rest of your life. Um, but that conversation wasn't as easy when I went back to my dad to tell him. Because <laughs> I was like, all right, dad, you know, I'm going to leave the NHS and kind of focus on this non-surgical side. My dad was like, Botox, Bot- what is Botox? Is <laughs> <laughs> a football player? <laughs> yeah, he didn't even know like He was just cussing. And then like, yeah. he was just like, you got the stable job, pension, we put you through. No, 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 no. And like, to be fair, he did give me an offer. He said, right. He goes, first of all, you're not just leaving without a CCT, right? So that's not happening. You need to figure out a way to get a CCT. And I said, dad, I'm not doing fellowship five years. It's not happening. He says, look, non-negotiable. Then he was like, also at the same time, when you're doing this job or whatever, he says, he just just dismissed it. He goes, until that salary you're getting in it works out the same or more as your NHS salary, you cannot leave it. So I was like, okay. And I'm a grown man at this stage because a lot of people will be thinking, what, you're a grown man? But you're not in an African household. <laughs> you yeah. know? You're not, as you understand. So I was like, okay. And it, to be fair, it was wise words. So in the end, I was like, okay, what is what can I do now? You know. So then I was looking at, well, GP, if I go to GP now, that's three years, I can complete a CCT and maybe I can comp- do that side with the practice and let it build. That was my plan. So I said, my dad, and he said, okay, cool. So I did that, applied for it, got in and, you know, passed the first time and went straight through. But I was already doing my non-surgical clinics um, on the outside during that. And by the time I finished those three years, my practice had grown massively to the point that I already done and doubled what my dad said. So I was like, look, dad, this is where it is now. This is what I want to focus on. And, you know, my dad being an accountant, he looked at the numbers, saw what I was doing and said, okay, right. We can go forward, and that was it. Wow. So, I mean, I, I don't know if this is around about the same time, but there was a show on TV called Nip Nip Tuck or Nip and Nip Tuck. Tuck. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember Nip Tuck. No, I think that was just before, you know. Oh, it's just before. Okay. Yeah, I think that was okay. just before. Yeah, just before. But did that also spark some sort of interest, some intrigue into us? Oh. You know, because I yeah. think what it did was that, to be fair, altered my perception of what I was going to see in hospital. So you looked at Nick Tuck and plastic surgery was just glamorous, you know, it was just glamorous lifestyles, bars, all these bars, all these things. And then when you went in it, you were like, nah, this isn't what it is, you know? Um, And don't get me wrong, it wasn't just for that, but, you know, particularly with the stresses, as you know, of the NHS, you know, even seniors now do a lot less than they did before. So, you know, it wasn't until like about rest level, I thought I was actually doing some proper surgery, if that makes sense. You know, a lot of it, you felt like an honorary scribe. So 
I did get disheartened by that. But I remember then when I was in the non-surgical clinics after work, I felt like a boss, my own boss. You know, I felt like I was managing my patient load. I didn't have any pressures from anyone telling me they had to be discharged or whatever. I was reviewing them and I was getting true satisfaction back from them loving their results. So that for me was a big kind of looking at the chain difference between the two. And it felt more closer to that nipped up culture or life that we're seeing on TV. And I thought, you know what? I need this for me. And I think the other thing on top, I realized very quickly, and it's not against anyone in the NHS because, you know, I've got a lot of friends in there and I, you know, went back there during the pandemic. But I wanted something that I could give to my family going forward because, you know, with the big part of my dad and my mum sacrificing, I thought, you know what, this is not just about me. This is a legacy thing now. You know, they've sacrificed to put me and my sister in a different position. I need to take this forward to change things going forever, you know, for my kids and their kids and their kids. So I was very focused from a legacy point of view with everything. Yeah, I was. In fact, I was just about to ask you about your siblings because we didn't really touch on that earlier. But so you've got you've got a younger you've got a younger sister, a younger sister who's a radiographer. Um, ah. Cool. She's like you know she was always you know there's always like the two depending if there's two kids or more. Right. I was the first born, but I was like the prodigal son going about you know away at uni and everything. But my sister did a uni at home, stayed at home till she got married. So that took a lot of pressure off me um, being the firstborn because she got married before me, had kids before me. You know, I'm just going about <laughs> I my parents are thinking, what's this boy going to do <laughs> at weddings? Like, come see my son. He's a doctor, you know, <laughs> as it is, you know. So, yeah, they, it was like one of those. But um, no, after then, when I settled down, had kids and everything else, you know, it made me laugh because by then I had already had two clinics and everything else. And my dad was like, oh, finally, you're getting serious about your life. I was like, dad, I think I was very serious already. But now, nah, until <laughs> kids and, and missus, I wasn't serious. I mean, what, what I wanted to ask you is, why was your first clinic up all the way up in Newcastle? So that's where I did my GP rotation. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. So when I applied, I applied for GP. And then I was, I didn't know if I was going to apply for London. I wasn't too sure. And then at the time, I was dating a girl from Newcastle. Um, and I've been dating her for about two years, two years, three years. So it was like, I'm going to apply to London. She's going to come to London. Or I'm going to apply to Newcastle. And it just turned out that like I got Newcastle. So that made sense there. Um, so that's how I ended up in Newcastle. And then during my rotation there, you know, um, as I was starting my non-surgical bits, I started to build up a small but low following. Um, and I was used in social media then, uh, you know, a lot of people weren't really using that to post their results then, but I was posting my before and afters all the time and gaining a lot of traction from doing that. And it, it kind of poured gasoline on the fire one day when one celebrity saw her friends and before and after my page called me up, said, look, can I come and see you? I hadn't seen anyone famous at that point. So I was quite nervous. And I, I remember, you know, all I had at that time was this small space above a hairdresser's where I had a fold out bed from Amazon, which I bought for like 20 quid, you know. So I was like, this library is coming and I've just got this space above there. So I was like, right, I need to make it look like something. So I've got my girlfriend at the time to pretend to be my receptionist, you know, like I bought all these Fiji water. I remember like just doing all this stuff to try and make it look a bit extra. Um, she came she didn't really care about all that she was lovely had a treatment and then 
I went to sleep and I woke up in the morning and I thought something very bad had happened because I had so many emails and my Insta was popping off. I thought, oh God, what's happened? But it just turned out she had posted saying like, oh my God, love my lips. Thanks to Dr. Esho and literally Daily Mail from the Sun to everybody were like, oh, you know, you know, who are you? What did you do? Everything. And yeah, from there, there was a kind of almost snowball effect because then I moved into this kind of celebrity black book where everybody was passing my name around saying, this is the guy to go to. Um, and, and that helped build my practice together with social media. And then I know you, you were on the front cover of the Times magazine at one stage. Where did that come after, you know, Man, setting up the clinic? That was, that was pretty mad. So um, at that point, so I had, so what happened after the build of everything, I kind of put the money aside and got my first space in Newcastle, um, which is a small space, two clinic rooms and a reception. And I started building up doing that. But then I was coming back to London as well, seeing family and trying to kind of scope out where I wanted to be in London. So I'd lease the room in Harley Street for as and when use. And then I got a contact from the Times magazine. So look, we've heard about you. You know, people calling you the lip doctor and all these things or Dr. Instagram. They said, look, do you want to do an interview? You know, it just will be for half a page. So I was like, oh, man, this is amazing. You know, this is great. So, you know, went down, you know, had the interview. The interview was supposed to be about like 15 minutes, turned out being two hours. Um, and then they said, oh, we're going to do a shoot. That was it. So before coming down, they said, oh, we'll do a shoot for the page. And what we're going to do is just if you get one of your patients who's happy to be a model, we'll do some shots of you pretending to inject and stuff. So that's why, because a lot of people keep saying, is that your missus on the cover? I'm like, no. And, and she gets mad about that because she's like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, if I knew I was going to be on the cover, I would have got my missus to be with me. Yeah. But like, it literally was supposed to be these kind of thing shots. So when we got to finish the interview, we got to the photographer in the room. I had this avant-garde guy and he was like, I've got a different vision. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I want her to lay across the table. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> laying across my table. What are you trying to? No, 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 no. I was like, that's not happening. And he was like, oh, trust me. I said, no, I'm sorry. I trust you, but that's not happening. So we had this negotiation in the end. He was like, okay, she could sit on the corner. I said, okay. And he wanted to do that. If you seen the cover with the mirror, he wanted to reflect her image while I'm holding it. So I'm thinking, like, where's this going? He says, oh, no, I think this will be a more exciting picture for the piece. So a few weeks later, we get contact back, and they said, oh, the piece was really good. You know what? There's so much content. It's going to be at least two pages. So very happy, rap, you know, to the fact that times two pages, half page, you know, I'm gassed. Then they call back and out two weeks again, and he said, you know what? Actually, it's really, really good. We're going to do four pages. And so I'm like, wow. And he said, yeah, we think we're going to do a center page and then, you know, things. So I'm already just ecstatic of that. And then they called back a week later and they said, actually, you know what? We'll finish it now. It's going to be seven pages. <laughs> wow. And I'm like, okay. And then I talked to my friend who was in PR then, Sophia, and we were speaking. And I'm like, you know, she says to me, see, I don't want to like put your hopes up, but listen to me out. If you are seven pages in a magazine, that's the most dominant part of the magazine. So I'm very sure you're going to get a front cover mention at least as a minimum. So I'm like, serious? She's like, yeah, I think so, but don't hold me to it. So I'm just thinking, okay, I'm going to get Dr. Escher feature inside, you know, seven pages. I don't even care if it's not there because seven pages, I'm like, oh my God. And then I was in um, Monaco doing a talk for Alma Lasers. And when it was due to come out and I, I got a photo, but I didn't have my Wi-Fi, so it was just blurred. I couldn't see it. But all I get is a message underneath it from my friend saying, you are on the front cover of the Times. 
And I couldn't believe it. Like my phone was just going off. I finally downloaded, could see the image. I lost my mind. My mum was in the supermarket getting every single Times magazine that was. Um, yeah, it was a big moment. And I think, you know, that took me from not just UK, but internationally, because I got a call then from America, from CAA, the largest, uh, you know, agency in there. And they were like, look, we saw this piece. We think you'll be great in America. I was like, I can't leave. I just got my first clinic in the UK, you know. So they were like, okay, well, keep us in mind if you want to come to the States, you know. Um, and then, you know, TV channels at that point as well on top, like, you know, who's this guy, you know. And, you know, and it kept getting, coming back. They were like, he doesn't look like a doctor, though. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and, and that was it. But it was almost okay. working in a positive way, if that makes sense, because mm-hmm. a lot of the channels that were trying to push through, which you see now, these medical programs, were looking for experienced but younger doctors. And the yeah. typical quintessential person in that position was older and white. So they were trying to move away from that. And when they saw that, they were like, this is our guy, you know. Um, and that's where things kind of blew up forward from there. Yeah, I mean, we'll certainly touch on the TV work in a in a few secs because um, you've done so much over recent years. But I mean, just going back a couple of steps, we spoke about setting up your clinic in in Newcastle, and then how did the one in London and the one in Dubai come about? What's the what's the timeline to those? Yeah, so the first was Newcastle, um, and that came about because. Um, a patient of mine, um, I could say her name because she's happy to, Andrea Wiley, she's still a patient now, um, didn't want me to go back to London because she was like, no, I don't trust anyone else with my face. I want you to stay. And I was like, I can't really afford two spaces and I really wanted to focus on London. That's it. And she was like, look, my, ask my husband. He's got a few properties and, you know, just go and see him and see what he says. And like this guy sends me this email and it's like almost the half of Newcastle. Probably I'm thinking, who's this guy? So I put his name in Graham Wiley in the thing. And I realized this is a guy who made Sage Pay. And I'm like, yo, this, this is a big guy. This guy <laughs> like owns half of Newcastle. So I go and see a couple of properties and see one I like. And I'm like, still, I, I can't afford this. So I say to him, look, I can't really afford this. I know your wife wants me to stay, but I can't. He said, look, just give me a figure of what you think. And I lowballed this figure saying, this is what I think. And he just gave me a contract straight there afterwards. And I was like, why do you give me a contract? And he said, son, you know, when you get older, you learn it's important to keep your wife happy. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow. So I had her to thank for that. And I still thank her to this day um, that made that possible. And so then London came when I was leasing a room in Harley Street. So I was going between that room there and then leasing a room in Harley Street um, on the weekends and trying to build up a practice is there and as that built up then harley street um the number 10 that I was at they gave they could give you option to have a permanent room even though it was just one room so i moved into having a permanent room in number 10 and then in harley street in london and then having the one in newcastle as well dubai happened because then the, i i broke up a long time ago to go in newcastle and um the my fiance now and who i'm with um we had met um in leeds actually when i was in my surgical rotation and we just were friends and we had kept contact on Facebook and everything else. And then, you know, I think there was one year message there and she was like, oh, I'm in Dubai now. I work there, um, you know, but I'm going to be in London, you know, it'd be lovely to catch up. So she did come down. We met, we got on like a house on fire. So I started going over to Dubai to see her. So we ended up having like a bit of a long distance relationship. And then in that time, I, that's what I discovered Dubai. I didn't really know Dubai until she was there. And I started seeing it as a city and how it was. And I thought, my God, 
actually there's business to be done here, you know, but I didn't know how. And I started researching, understanding, oh, you know, if you came from the UK, you had to have an Emirati that, you know, sanctioned you because they take 20%. There's all these rules that you can just come and set up a business in there. So I kind of got put off in a while, but then I met a guy who's my partner out there now, um, Mr. Khan, and I met him at a conference and he'd heard about me and he said, look, you know, I want to do this setup in Dubai when I want to bring the best of each person for particular things into Dubai. And, you know, so he was talking about me, Dr. Nassif from Botch and, and, and a couple of other guys. And yeah, we, we took it forward from there. And that's been like six years ago now. Um, and I went from having one clinic there to now having two um, there. So and I go there every quarter um, now to split up my time. I mean, it's interesting what you said, actually, uh, a few a few moments ago about people didn't see you as a doctor. Um, mm. I mean, I guess, as you said, in, in you could flip that around and, and say that actually, because you are a black doctor, in some ways, you're more memorable, right? You, and yeah. There are very few other black doctors with your kind of, with your kind of notoriety out there. Mm. So do you think that's helped you over, over across your career? It's definitely helped, but it's also been like, not a burden, I would say, but definitely a pressure, you know, that I'm aware of. Because um, when we did the Times cover, the photo editor person said, so, you know, you're the first black doctor on a couple of Times magazine. And I went, nah. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, nah. And I was like, it's got to be, you know, I know there's famous about that. He's like, no, but on the cover of Times. And that was crazy. That was 2018, you know. So for me to see that, and I remember my mom when she told me, about how she was showing people in the street and their neighbors and neighbors' daughter and son was like, oh, I want to be a doctor because he's seen that front cover. Um, so it was it was good, but I definitely did feel pressure in a sense that I was like, right, you know, we've seen how it goes sometimes, you know, where we get high profile, you know, black people. And, and my dad always worried about that. He always, even though the success was coming, he was always worried about, oh, well, you know, try, you know, make sure you don't make a mistake, make sure you don't think because, you know, you go from being, oh, the nation's, you know, top UK doctor to being the Nigerian doctor that's done X. So he was very kind of cautious with that and always kind of worried about it before he passed. Yeah, I'm sorry, sorry to hear that. I did uh, I did uh, learn about that uh, earlier today that he um, mm. passed. Uh, it's it, it last year, wasn't it? Last year, yeah. March. Yeah. Unfortunately. So. Yeah, sorry, sorry about that. It's also interesting the fact that you have mentioned him numerous times so far in the last half an hour. And I'm just, I was just wondering how influential do you think your dad was in your success? I owe him everything. Yeah. I owe him everything. You know, I remember when I graduated, um, like my dad came up to me and hugged me and, and then he was crying. And that was weird for me because I've never seen my dad show any form of emotion. So I remember looking at my mum thinking, is he okay? <laughs> and my mum laughed and said, he feels like he's done his job now you know and our relationship changed from that time it went from this kind of almost dictatorship you do as i say to speaking to me as a man you know um and that changed and i you know i understood it more i understood everything then i understood the pressure he had you know and i understand it even more as a parent now you know i think man he he just had that weight of just wanting to keep me on the straight and narrow, wanting to make sure I was as successful as could be, you know, doing as much in a time where it was hard, particularly for people who are black, you know, that's so much pressure. And I think, you know, when he hugged me that time, he cried, that was probably all of it coming out. It was just like, yeah, okay. Okay. Good. The job, the job is done. 
I mean, we've we've had different people on the show. Um, so we've had like you know people in TV, uh, producers. We've had uh, entrepreneurs, and they've all basically had a period where they've faced challenges and they've had to you know push through, get through those challenges, and they've come out the other end uh, mm. and been successful. And I was just wondering, like so far, what you've said it appears to be all pretty straightforward in terms of the success and it's been snowballing and then you've been on the front cover of the times magazine and this this lady up in newcastle in that period i mean what what was the biggest challenge that you faced and and how, how did you get through it do you think yeah man no i've had big challenges through that time um personal and in work you know personal um my mum this was even before i finished gp got diagnosed with bowel cancer and that, I remember getting the call. Um, I was in Newcastle at the time and they said, your mum's going into theatre. She's had abdo pain. I was like, what the hell? What? You know, and they said, oh, they think it's an appendicitis. And I'm like, what? A lady in her 50s appendicitis? This doesn't make sense. You know, school school teaches you sequel cancer, you know, um, you know, gives a cult a presentation appendicitis. You know, I went straight textbook in my head. But I was like, okay, if they're saying it is, it must be, you know, and they treated it still as appendicitis. They said it was appendix. They took it out. Um, but my mom still wasn't getting better and um, ended up perforating, went back. And it was not until then that he went back in and they said, no, it's a sequel cancer. And so they had to do a right hemicolectomy, emergency one, because she had perforated that time and had fecal peritonitis. And it was a very scary time because I thought, you know, our mom was the archetypal figure in, like, in many families, um, particularly African families. And seeing her go through that to have chemo and just lose so much weight and radiotherapy, you know, I just thought she wasn't going to make it through. I was praying every day, um, but she did, you know. And then to get at the other side of that, and then my dad get diagnosed with a prostate cancer, I just thought, what is going on? Like, I just thought, you know, because he took me back to med school. I remember one of our first lectures where they said, turn to the person on the left, turn to the person on the right. And we did. And they said, one of you are going to suffer cancer in your life. And we were like, whoa, it was a deep lecture. But it was right because it was one in three then, you know, now it's one in two, you know. So it very much affected me because I went from like having no really experience with cancer, yes, treating as a doctor, but then having two parents with it, you know. And I just prayed and I hoped that my dad was going to make it through. But when they said it was like too late, it was metastatic, you know, I just knew where it was going to go. And as being a doctor in the family, and having the way of explaining it to everyone and trying to work at the same time and trying to plan and prepare myself as well. The fact it, it was a lot, you know, um, and it still is a lot, you know. Um, you know, sometimes it doesn't even feel real. Um, so those are the, probably, I would say, the biggest in terms of family aspect. When I didn't have my own family, my son, um, it's my first child, when he was 15 months old during the pandemic, um, I remember coming down into the living room and he was just laying on his chest. He was 15 months old and he was just heavy breathing. He wasn't moving, just looking me dead in the eye. And I thought, oh my God, I picked him up. You know, I didn't know what was going on. I called the hospital. They said, look, because of COVID, we're saying to manage things at home. I said, this is not something to manage at home. Like I'm a doctor. I'm taking him into A&E, got him into A&E. We were there. He was on high flow oxygen, really wasn't responding. I know the hospital's busy because of COVID. And I remember thinking, my God, I've got to do something here. So I was going back and forth all the time going, we need to get the register up. We're going to have to intubate him or he's going to crash. I've seen this before. 
And the register was like, okay, you know, went and got the scene in and he was looking and he goes, yeah, I agree. And like literally just as they got the kit, he started crashing. And so it was me with the consultant that was like intubating my own son, you know, and, you know, I had to get the missus out of the room. Um, and yeah, we had him intubated then he was stabilized. Then they said they had to take him to the children's hospital. But because of COVID, they first said, look, you two can't come. And my missus lost it. I was like, no way, we're going. Like, you're going to have to kill me if, um, without that. So they still got us in the ambulance. We went and then we spoke to the bed manager. And I think, you know, they had their hands tied, but they understood the situation. So they let us in in the end. And we were there for two weeks. You know, two weeks he was intubated, not knowing if he was going to come through it or whatever. And he showed us a different world. We were in there with parents that have been in there for months, you know. And, you know, he did come through and it was so grateful, so grateful. Um, but seeing that as a parent, having to intubate your own child, having to nearly lose him so young and seeing other children going through that, I'll, I'll never forget that. And I still think, you know, me and my missus are a bit affected by that. But so from a kind of personal perspective, we've had challenges. And, you know, one of the biggest things for me was to try and always mentally segment everything because yeah. I was like that responsibility, not just to my missus, to my family, to my parents, to everything. I always thought I need to keep going because if I don't keep going, this whole thing falls apart. So there's too many people relying on me for me to feel too much emotion right now, for me to allow myself to break. So it wasn't an option almost. So that's how we kind of got through. From a business side, boy, um, the biggest thing I would say was, I don't know if you know, so I joined the Abnormal Beauty Company. Oh, no, no, I don't know about that, no. Yeah, so they had hunting me. So Desiem, for the video listeners that are not listening, they're the biggest beauty company in, like, in the world. They were bought by SA Lord for $2 billion. Okay. Um, and um, the CEO at the time, Brandon, who's died now, um, he had my hunting me out of blue. I was a fan. I was already buying their products. And I got a message from their team saying, oh, Dr. Esho, Brandon is going to be in the UK. We'd love to see you. And I thought it was a prank. I was like, you know who I am. Like, I'm not really anything, you know. And they came down with his team and Nicola, his co-CEO, and they met me. And we were just chopping up, talking for ages. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And when when, when was this? Was this, um, what year? This was about after the Times Magazine. So we're talking about 2019, I think. Ah, okay. So not yeah. so far, not so long ago. Yeah, so long, long ago. And, you know, he turns around at the end of conversations, we want to do a product line with you. And I was like, wow, like, you know, this is the biggest company in the world wanting to do a product line with me. It's a doctor's dream, you know? Um, so I was like, yeah, you know, I, I signed the contract like it was anything. They even look at the contract at the time, um, which is definitely a learning point. Um, and then, yeah, I got flown across to Canada where it was based. You know, it was a big, immersive week. I was in meetings between different boards, the lab, you know, the designers, everything. They had this kind of vision board of what it looked like. Formulations wanted to discuss with me. It was crazy. And, you know, I thought, my God, this is going to be a game changer. Like, you know, thinking about that legacy pieces we're talking about, I was like, wow, like, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. But Brandon, the CEO at the time, he had a mental breakdown. So he started doing a lot of random stuff on social media. He started traveling randomly to different places, vanishing. And, you know, the whole company was getting concerned. Then he canceled just so many product lines, just out of blue, like erratic and including mine. And he did that by posting on social media. Like he posted a post on their big Instagram ad. 
2 million followers saying like, Dr. TJ, I'm so sorry, we have to let you go. I'm sitting in a restaurant with my friends at this point and I see this pop up on Instagram and I'm like, huh? Am I hallucinating? Like, I, I, I didn't even know what to think. I tried to call Nicola Nicosia. She was in bits. She, she, she just didn't have any control. So for a time, that was so big and so public for me because I was then seeing it on Reddit. I was seeing a thing. People were like, oh, my God, did you see Dr. Escher's lines with this? It was a lot, you know, and it really hurt because it was like one of the biggest opportunities for me. And then it was just taken away. And I thought I was never going to get it again. I remember I had to see solicitors. And at the time, I was mourning the loss of a friend because this is a guy I, I still, you know, look up to today. I know it wasn't his fault of what he was mentally going through. But then, you know, I was also trying to protect my products that I produced with him at the same time. So there was two bits in me battling, you know. But Nicola, um, who was really great, she said, look, you know, the deal you signed, we actually own the trademarks, everything. And that's why it's important to know this because if they didn't want to, they could have kept everything. Um, but she gave me the trademarks and everything formulation. So look, you know, I think this is a potential to do really well. I want you to have this because you didn't get to do it the way you wanted to. Um, and she did. And so, you know, I took that with me and I just put it aside. I didn't want to think of doing anything with that until when the pandemic happened, everything happened with my son and I sat down again and I had actually time to think yeah. because then I'm going between how many clinics and, you know, there's not time. And I just thought, you know what? I want a bit of redemption here. I want to prove that I can do this. I want to prove I can do it on my own. And I want to prove the success of it initially wasn't just because it was with Desiem, but was with me. So there was a lot of pressure then. So I took the formulations, I reformulated. We went to QBC, um, who partnered with us on the launch of Desiem. They loved the products and we did the show. And I remember being probably the most nervous I was in my life because I thought, right, this is do or die now. We see <laughs> who, who was right. And we sold out within five minutes. And I remember thinking, yeah, okay, we've done it now. Um, and yeah, that was a big moment for me, but a big challenging moment too. Oh, wow. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, you know, people see you on TV and, you know, you've been on Body Fixers. You've been this morning with uh, Holly and Phil and and Morning Live. But I I don't know how many people know that side of your life, both the personal, you know, challenges and also the business challenge as well. Yeah, some some do somewhat. Some that followed me from before because... I'm quite open in sharing in, you know, losses and, and, and wins when I can. And, you know, from a family side, maybe more, not so much as because not just me private, my family is quite private. You probably will know that as well. I did a documentary, a kind of short doc with BBC on being black with cancer because that was important to me about black people speaking about cancer because I felt that, yes, there's privacy, but then there's suffering silence. And, you know, I felt in many ways my dad didn't, if he spoke about it, they would have caught it earlier. But there's this big taboo over the C word, particularly, and I think no one wants to talk about it. People don't want to talk. It's There's a curse around it. So, you know, it was trying to get people to speak about it and speak more so then early diagnosis can happen and, you know, people can be, be saved, really. Yeah. I mean, moving on to uh, slightly more sort of uh, lighter uh, themes, um, you've since uh, launched a number of different lines. Um, mm. So you've got your 
Esho Pharma. Um, you've got the skincare uh, line, and then you've also moved into clothing. Can, can you tell us a little bit about those three different lines? Yeah, um, I didn't even know you picked up on that. Um, so <laughs> yeah, um, you've done your research. Um, so for me, one of the biggest things when I launched the clinic was looking at things that I could do myself. I always said, right, if there's things within what I do, so it doesn't you know, segue and take um, too much mind from it, but it informs what I do. If I can do it better, then I'm going to do it. So one of the first things is definitely with the products. I'd already decided that when I joined SEM. So I knew from that time with Extra Pharma, I was going to develop product lines. So we re-released the product lines, reformulated them. They became the fastest selling lip products in history in QVC. You know, it's on Sephora, ASOS now. We've got our own e-commerce, which is moving to global distribution. And we're going to release face products, body products and home devices within the next year. So that for me is a big one because not just informing and growing the brand globally, but also as well from a legacy point of view, something my kids and family can step into and keep developing. You know, I always kept saying, I want to be like the black Dr. Murad, you know, um, you know, I want that um, for my family and for that to be happening and the brand to go on when I'm not here. You know, the clinics, they're developing. We built one now in Flannels um, Department Store in Liverpool, the first one in collaboration with them. Um, we've got one in Wimbledon now, one in Newcastle, as I said, um, and one in Dubai. Um, so we go between those and we're about to build another one in Chelsea um, this summer. So those are building. And then, yeah, the, the scrub line came on because one of my friends, a cloth surgeon, you might know him. Um, he's like one of the first Asian guys who were um, streetwear store on Savile Row. And it's funny because going back in the day in Leeds, we used to hang out in this place called Norman's um, and this bar. And that's where we would show after work and we'll chat. And, you know, he was the cloth surgeon. That's what his nickname was, the cloth surgeon, because he did all this stuff with clothes. And he was like, we always chomped it up saying, oh, we should do something because I'm going to be a surgeon. You're a cloth surgeon. Maybe we do something, you know, a clothing line. We were just played about with that idea and never really came to anything. And then for a long time, I wanted to do my own scrubs because I was like, man, these scrubs are rubbish. Like, you know, <laughs> I was just like, you know, I couldn't put any form of swag or anything on wards. I was like, nah, I can't even put my stamp on these. You know, these, 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 I haven't got anything to them. So I remember thinking, oh, you know what? Doing a designer scrub range would be really cool. You know, I think people will buy into it. And I had so much going on with DCM and everything all at that time. I, I just kind of put it aside. And then I saw Figs launch. And I went, oh, my days, my idea. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was so wound up. I remember going to my missus, see, I've been talking about this for how long? And then she was like, yeah, you can't do everything. And I said, oh, no, oh, my days. And it was just everywhere. But I was like, you know what? There's still time to do this. So I called up um, Rav, um, the cloth surgeon. And I said, look, you know, we were talking about this ages ago. I think we should do this in terms of like, you know, scrub clothing, take it to a different level. So yes, have the stuff like figs for the standard fit, but have like really couture so people can really just get bespoke scrubs. And I think a lot of people are doing that to differentially differentiate themselves as a brand, particularly in the private sector. And so, yeah, we came up with the name MedSets. And that's what we've been doing now behind the scenes. Um, we've got one of the ladies that works in Trapstar helping us with the um, material. Um, we've shut down the designs. I've worn some of the prototypes you may have seen on Instagram. Um, and at a point, probably towards the end of the year or beginning of next year, we'll launch those too. Fantastic, fantastic. I mean, things seem to be going so well for you. And I, I um, read earlier that there was a recent Mintel survey where they said, well, they found that 31% of Brits are interested in having 
cosmetic surgery in the future. So clearly, you know, things are going to be rosy for you moving forward as well. But what you were just saying about sort of leaving a legacy for your, for your kids, I don't know if you read, I think it was last week or the week before, Myla Kunis and her husband, um, Ashton Kushner. Ashton yeah. yeah. They came up with quite a, um, interesting sort of quote where they said, they're not interested in leaving their wealth to their kids because they fear that if they do that, the kids won't have any drive at all. I mean, I think they're worth, you know, 250 mil or something like mm. that. And that just got me thinking, it's like, hey, is that is that too harsh? You know, they're going to give it all away to charity. They're leaving nothing yeah. with the kids. What's, what's your view on that? Because obviously... You know, I, I yeah. think it's hard, but it's also reality. And it's something that I speak about. So I've got two good friends of mine that we've known each other for over 30 years. We've all got kids now. And we're a bit like myself. We're in a better position than we were when we grew up. We're fortunate to give our kids like everything now. And one of the biggest things we sit down and we talk about, because we all grew up in Edmonton, was like how do we give our kids the same hunger we have? You know, because when we grew up, we grew up on council estates, council housing, you know, we went to the big houses and we're like, I want that house. I want that car. Now we have that house. We have those cars. You know, he sees that as a basic, you know, and these things happen subliminally. They don't even happen. You know, I'm very strict with my son and my kids. And yet subliminally things happen. I'll give you an example we went round to one of his um, friends' um, houses. And this was just post-pandemic. You remember, like, Roman was really like a pandemic child because he was 15 months old on ITU. So he's not seen any other houses, right? Yeah. So we go to the house and he's asking a friend, where's your playroom? And the kids are not understanding what he's saying because he's like, playroom is his living room, you know? And he, my son's looking at me like, why has he not got a playroom? And I was like, well, not everyone's got a playroom, son. You know, you're very lucky, you know? You have this big playroom and everything else. So, but that was innocence, you know? That was innocence, but it was before him, it became a standard thing. So I was like, with my friends, how do we do this? You know, and I think the best thing we can do is educate them. You know, I don't think take away the things from them, but educate them and give them drive and understanding. So I'm very, very much with Roman already talking about financial literacy. So he's got a Go Henry card. He understands if we go to the shop, he can only use the money on his card. He understands he gets money on the card if he does certain actions in the house. He understands also for the bigger items, they cost more. So he starts to understand the things of saving because we play this thing called shop. Um, from when he was about like three, he's four now, and we play this thing called shop where I would get like my missus to give him like coins in a day if he did good stuff. And then I'll come out and then I'll put all these, have a fake till and I'll put all these items around. And then the sweets that I know he wants, that they'll be more expensive than what he's got in his hand. But there's biscuits that he could buy with that money. And so I'd always be like, okay, you could buy these biscuits now or you could save that money, do some more tasks tomorrow and get the sweets. And he would always just buy the biscuits straight away. <laughs> but, but then, you know, after a few times, he was like, you know what? I really want the sweets. Keep the money for me, Dad. So I keep the money. And then like, you know, how much money have I got now? Can I get the sweets? Yes. So you can start to get them to understand that and, and, and do it. And I think it's important that education piece of making sure they understand that this is 
not a given that mum and dad work very hard for this and you know that it can go away and you know I think if you do that then you don't really need to kind of like they say just take it all away from them you know you can leave it in good hands but I think that's a worry for everybody I think they talk about they've done studies on this isn't it I think it's called the third generation drop-off isn't it yeah, so yeah. like yeah so like you know we see the struggle I saw the struggle of my parents so we go on further my kids don't see the struggle you know but they might have a bit of hustle band the next ones don't see anything so then they're lazy and they lose it all so yeah it's one of those struggles yeah see some 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 that you're uh you've you've got in mind that's that's yeah, good 100%. to know good to know i know i've um we uh we're, we're drawing to a close now but a question that we ask all the guests that come onto the show is you've all had a level of success in your career but what would you most attribute your success to is it hard work talent or three luck which do you think has been most responsible for your success in your career to date? How do you separate talent and skill? It's lying in that, but I don't know how we're separating the two here. Um, but I think it, it lies in that. I definitely think when you do that, you get more lucky. You know, I think when you do that, you, opportunities start to happen, which don't. And, you know, that's the perceived luck, but it happens because of the work that you're doing based on the perceived skill that you have, you know. And I think for me, the biggest thing is consistency, hard work and consistency. Because I've, I've always said this, I think, you know, I'm very good at what I do, but I'm very sure there are people out there as good as what I am. But can they outwork me and do it? No. And, you know, I'm confident in that because I've had doctor upon doctor that's come in and just been with me for a day and a wink. And they're just been like, my God, I didn't really understand your day really was like that or uh, your week was like that. And I think when people step into the world or you ask anyone that works with me, they're like, he, he's nonstop. And I think that's why those things have happened because whilst people are still sleeping, I'm going. Whilst people have those birthday parties, I'm working. While people took those holidays, I'm going. So, you know, it's that hard work and sacrifice that pushes you, you know, to those to those realms sometimes. Well, they often said that about James Brown, didn't they? He was the hardest yeah. worker in, in show business. So you're you're the hardest worker in the medical field. No, I hope so. I hope so. Try and be. <laughs> <laughs> and just, just one final question. Um, if you hadn't have made it as a as a doctor and, and you know as, a, as an entrepreneur now, mm. what what else do you think you could have you you would have done in your career? You know what? I always said I was a creative. So again, I like the art and the drawing and the design. So. I would have been designing something, whether maybe it would have been an architect and designing buildings, an interior designer, doing graphic design work. It would have been creating something. Yeah. That's, that's definitely where my mind flows. And it's where I am as a doctor, like I'm very much a doctor, but I'm also a creative. And that's what helps my outlets in producing product lines or clothing or everything else is always an idea or something wanting to create from where I am. So where, where can people find out more about you? Because I know, I mean, there's so many other questions that I had, but I know um, we've got limited time. I know you've you've got interest in maybe doing some stuff in Nigeria. You've yeah. potentially got a book coming out. You've obviously, you know, you've got I don't even know that, man. You're like doing some manoir. I've stuff. got a good researcher. What I can, what can yeah, I say? Oh my God. You're not, was it Nawa? Like you're doing like, they go to the like, I'm like, yo, who told you that? Like, <laughs> but um, where, where can people find out more about you? Um, so for me, like I always say, my Instagram's almost like a book. Um, so at 
Dr. Tijon Esho, um, D-R-T-I-J-I-O-N-E-S-H-O. Um, everything's there. My links are to everything else are in that bio. So that's the best place to find me. Great stuff. Dr. Esho, thank you so much for your time and I wish you all the best for the future. No, thank you for having me. It's been great. Thanks so much to Dr. Esho. What a, what a journey he's had. I'm sure you will agree. And I particularly appreciate him being so open about some of the challenges he's had to deal with over recent years, including the, the death of his dad, who was clearly a, a big influence to him. As I said during the, during the chat, I had so many questions that I wanted to ask and we, we didn't quite have enough time to get through it all, but there might be a part two further down the line. So if there is, we look forward to that. That's it for this week's show. Check us out on all the socials, as usual, at How I Crushed It. And catch you on the next show.